Good morning, Harvest. You can be seated. We are in our final prophet of our summer series. All summer we have been in the Minor Prophets, and we're in our final one today. My name's Pace McKee. We're going to be covering the, or the uh, prophet of Malachi. It's the final prophet of the Old Testament. So you can turn in your Bible to Matthew, hang a left, and you'll be there. While you turn, let me, um, let me introduce our preaching text with a parable. Okay, with a parable. There once was a father who was extremely wealthy, extremely wealthy as an executive of an international company. Due to his career, the father was absent from his son's life, but he justified his absence by lavishing his son with a luxurious lifestyle. By the time his son reached adolescence, the son resented his father. All he wanted was a relationship with his father, and it was the one thing his father refused to give him. When you and I hear that story, A, it's a familiar story. We've heard that story before. But B, you and I would hear that story, and we would empathize with the son. We would say to that father, what are you doing? What are you doing? So careless so careless with your relationship with your son, so callous towards him. There's a second parable. This is a man who wasn't an executive of a company, but was a day laborer. He didn't have a lot of money, but he was very present in his son's life, always coaching his son's team, waking up early to walk his son to school, helping him with his homework. By the time this son entered adolescence, he too resented his father. One day the father came home from work and said, I don't understand. Why do you resent me? Why don't you love me? And the son just looks at his father and shrugs his shoulders and says, I don't have the life I want. My friends, they have more money. They go to better schools. They drive better cars. Harvest Church, when you and I hear that story, we would empathize with that father and we would look to that son and say, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're on a dangerous road, so vain, so conceited, so self-absorbed. Your father gave you his most priceless possession, himself, and you shrug your shoulders. Well, Harvest Church, as we arrive in Malachi, this is the conversation that God is having with Israel. God is that father, and Israel is that child. You see, the Israelites had returned from exile, okay? The temple had been rebuilt thanks to the preaching of Haggai. The walls had been restored thanks to Nehemiah, okay? They were worshiping in the temple thanks to Ezra. You see, the external situation was looking up. It was looking as better than it ever had. And yet, the internal situation, what was going on inside of the Israelites, was degrading. It was as worse as it ever had been. You see, they had not learned their lesson in exile. They'd grown skeptical of God's love careless in their worship of him, indifferent towards 
truth, broken the covenant, faithless in their marriages, and stingy in their tithes. This is the audience that Malachi is addressed to. This is the audience. So Malachi 1, 1 through 5. Why don't you stand in honor of the reading of God's word as I read this. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. This is the word of God for the people of God and all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, um, I get up here and my, my words seem so weak, anxiety so high. I'd ask that you would help me divide the word rightly. Guys, I teach your word now. Would your spirit go to work in our lives, plant it deep in our souls to help us apply it, to grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You speak now. I'll be so very careful to give you all the glory and all of the honor and all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, hey, listen, many of the minor prophets that you and I have covered this summer begin with a similar introductory statement, the word of the Lord, which came to Joel, which came to Zephaniah, which came to Micah, Hosea. Malachi deviates from that formula slightly with this introductory statement, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Hey, and listen, before we just get into our text, I I want to look at this verse, this statement here, and draw out two guiding principles, two guiding principles from our time today, from verse one. Look at it. The first word, the oracle. Maybe your Bible says the prophecy, the vision, the pronouncement. Mine says oracle. What is an oracle? The word literally means a burden, a load, okay? It's often used to describe the weight that an animal would carry, okay? So we have an oracle. The text is communicating to us from the very first word that what you're about to hear is serious. It's heavy. It's weighty. It defines how you're going to move forward and how you are going to carry on. So the first thing you need to know this morning is that this message, this message is weighty. It is significant. So we have the oracle, something weighty and heavy. What makes it so heavy? Look at the next phrase, okay? The oracle of the word of the Lord. You see, it is the very words of God to Israel. Now, quick little aside, Bible trivia here. That's intentional. That's intentional. God has addressed this text to Israel. He's making a statement. He said, enough of this. Enough of this. Some of you have returned. Some haven't. Enough of this divided kingdom deal. This is my words to all of Israel. And it arrives through Malachi. So you have the word of the Lord 
through Malachi. Maybe yours says by Malachi. That's an idiom. Okay, this is our second guiding principle. That right there is an idiom. Okay, what's an idiom? An idiom is like when your grandma says, it's raining cats and dogs. Or like when your dad says, children, that that cost an arm and a leg. Or like when I say that El Portan Queso is out of this world. Okay, that's an idiom. Okay, it's emphatic. It's meant to emphasize something. The idea behind this word right here is that it's by the hand of Malachi. Understand what he's saying. He is redundantly saying that the word of the Lord is the Lord's. The word of the Lord is the Lord. So it's doubly emphatic. Okay, so you get two guiding principles. One, this message bears great weight. And two, it belongs to the Lord. It bears great weight and belongs to the Lord. That's meant to perk up our ears to what we're about to hear, to the heavy, significant, divine words of the one true God of the Bible. This is not Malachi's wisdom. This is not Malachi's warning. This is the Lord's, and it is his message, and it bears great weight. Okay, so what is the oracle? What is this burden? What is the weighty, pressing, urgent message of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi? Look at verse 2. Here it is. I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you. This message is one of love. Harvest Church, if you were to go home today, open your Bible and read Malachi. It'd take you about 13 minutes. It's 55 verses. And what you would see is a plan, God's plan, to redeem an apathetic, wayward, and spiritually declining people. It's his love for them. Now, if you're anything like me, in your flesh, you would think that this message would include some sort of rebuke, some sort of denunciation, some warning of coming judgment. And those do come. But the dominant note, the surprising tone is one of love. It's one of love. You see, whatever rebukes we deserve to hear from the law of God, whatever denunciations of our sin we need to wake us up from our own self-absorption and pride that Seth so keenly talked about last week, unless and until we grasp the love of God, or better yet, unless and until the love of God lays hold of us, there is no hope. There is, no, there is no possibility of real change. You see, the entire gospel blessing is comprehended in these four words. I have loved you. I've loved you. It was love, love in eternity that purposed your salvation. Love that moved the Father to send the Son. Love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Love that called us from death to life. Love that keeps us. Love that secures us. And love that compels us until we're brought home to glory. It was love. Love from the beginning to the end. And God says, I have loved you. I've loved you so that there is no hope, no forgiveness, no sanctification, no advance in obedience, no pursuit in holiness, no perseverance through trials, no joy, no peace, no cheer, no rest, nothing outside of these singular truths that comes in these four words, I have 
loved you. Harvest Church, don't you know you're loved today? And that bears great weight. And I wonder if perhaps that's all you need today. That's all you need today. You've been making resolutions, turning over new leaves, saying, I'll do better, I'll try harder. But God's plan, God's plan to deal with sin in your life, to strengthen your obedience, to mature your faith and sustain you through suffering is the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you. I love you. It's the most important thing that you can hear this morning is the Father speak those words anew and afresh into your life. I'll say it again. It is the most important thing for you to hear the word of the Lord. Listen, not first summoning you to do, but first summoning you to receive. I have loved you. I love you. You see, it's because you've been loved from eternity that you'll be loved to eternity. Which makes it all the more astonishing to see how Israel reacts to this declaration of love. How do they react? Look at verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? You've loved us? Really? We've been in exile. We're living under the boot heel of the Persians. We're weak. We're impoverished. We're suffering. You loved us? What does that even mean? You might ask God that question from time to time. I don't know about you. Sometimes I have a difficulty squaring my personal experience with the declaration of God's love to me. I look at my circumstances. I hear God loves me. And I don't see how those pieces fit together. We don't feel loved, not some days. In fact, we feel abandoned, forgotten, overlooked. The days when it gets so submerged beneath worry and pain and anxiety and darkness and trouble and suffering, we no longer hear how arrogant it sounds for us to talk back to God. How have you loved us? Prove it. And God makes a weighty declaration. I have loved you. The Israelites shrug their shoulders. How have you loved us? And notice, just nonetheless, notice, his answer alone is a demonstration of his love. He doesn't denounce them for their wrongheadedness. Instead, with remarkable patience, he answers their question. How have you loved us? And God says, let me tell you how I've loved you. And he proceeds to say, verse 2, was not Esau Jacob's brother? How many of y'all saw that one coming? How have you loved me, God? And he's like, well, uh, Jacob and Esau were brothers. Right? Most of you probably aren't sitting here in a moment of revelation Oh, yes, you love me. Jacob and Esau, 1,600 years ago, were brothers. Got it. Hey, listen, they understood. They understood the audience of Malachi knew exactly what he was saying. You see, what God was saying is that it's not just that I've loved you. I've loved your crazy family for generations. That's what he's saying. He's saying, hey, you remember your crazy cousin, Eddie, who shows up on Christmas Eve in an RV? Loved him. 
okay? Love Tim. Okay, God is talking about family history here. They knew the story of Jacob. You know what Jacob's name means? Deceiver, trickster. Jacob was a con man, yet God loved Jacob. You see, to explain his love for the Israelites in Malachi, God is going to take them back all the way to the very first book of the Old Testament. He's going to tell them a story about Jacob and Esau. You see it there in verse 2? Seth touched on this story uh, last week. It's actually what the Lord just used in my life to, to stir up my affections for this passage and to lead me to preach this. It's kind of an odd passage to preach. If you look at the whole scope of Malachi, this would be an odd one to choose. But God was working in my life last Sunday. I said, right here, Jacob and Esau, what do you know? What do you need to know about Jacob and Esau? Listen, Jacob and Esau lived 1,600 years before the writing of Malachi. Jacob and Esau were twin brothers, okay? But they could not have been any more different, okay? Uh, Jacob, uh, Jacob was tender. Esau was rugged, okay? Jacob drives a hybrid. Esau drives a diesel-burning F-250, some of those extra lights on top, okay? Okay, you've got Jacob. Jacob spends his days in the library, probably wearing Birkenstocks. Esau is barefoot and chasing bobcats, okay? All right, right. while Esau hunts, Jacob finger paints his feelings, okay? You get the picture? Okay, that's Jacob and Esau. Okay, hey, listen, here's what you need to know about the culture of the home that Jacob and Esau were born into. You see, in their culture, it was a really big deal to be the firstborn son. Okay, think of an ancient monarch where the firstborn son inherits the seat when dad dies. That's what it's like. Okay, Isaac, their dad, he wasn't the king of a nation state, but he was a very powerful lord, extremely wealthy, vast holdings, lots of money, a powerful militia. And the firstborn son would inherit the seat of all that wealth and all that power when dad died. But, but in Jacob and Esau's case, that wasn't all. You see, Jacob and Esau belonged to the royal family of God. God's plan was that he would save and reconcile and redeem his people through a promised Messiah that would come through Abraham, Jacob and Esau's granddad. This was a huge deal. You see, Abraham, Isaac, and whoever Isaac's chosen son was, they were like the founding fathers of Israel. Right? If Israel had a Mount Rushmore, those three would be on it. Okay, and let me tell you something. In a photo finish, in like a Tokyo Olympic photo finish, Esau comes out first. And boom, favored son. Now you and I, you and I, we can read the Bible we can go back to Genesis chapter 25 when Jacob and Esau were still in their mother's womb and hear that God told their mother, the older shall serve the younger. But she didn't know what that meant. You see, Jacob and Esau would grow up assuming that the firstborn son would get the holdings of dad and was chosen by God to be the forerunner of the Messiah. What an honor. What love from God. What grace from God. Fast forward. They're now adults 
One day Esau comes in from a hunting trip. He's got nothing. He's cut. He's bruised. He's beat up. He's been out in the elements. He's empty-handed, super discouraged. His fleshly appetite is raging, and he slumps in to the family compound, starving, and his brother is pulling out like a Thanksgiving turkey, Christmas ham, and Esau sees the opportunity to satisfy a fleshly craving. Jacob, not a good man, conniving, deceitful, sees the opportunity and says, I will satisfy your fleshly craving in exchange for the birthright. Esau, already hungering, leaps at the possibility, and in an instant, he gives away all that money, all that power for the temporary satisfaction of a carnal craving. But not just that. You see, far worse than the money and the power, he gave away the honor of God. You see, he thought in that moment that he was the chosen one, the forerunner of the Messiah. What love from God in Esau shrugs his shoulders, meh, and throws it away. You see it now? You see it now? Shrugs his shoulders at the declaration of God's love. How have you loved me, God? I'm hungry. I'm beat up and I'm beat down. I've been out there in the wilderness. How have you loved me? Harvest Church, you see the connection? You see it? That's how valueless the love of God had become to Esau, that he would trade it for the temporary satisfaction of a carnal craving. And so God responds to the Israelite shrug of indifference and says, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Well, now you know. The answer is yes. In fact, it was his twin brother. And by all rights and privileges, Esau should have gotten the blessing and the inheritance. God is saying, he's saying, hey, listen, I could have just as easily chosen Esau instead of you. Weren't you twins? Wasn't he the older brother? Wasn't Jacob, your father, a deceiver? But I loved you. I have loved Jacob. You see it in the text? I chose you myself. I loved you unconditionally. When you were still in your mother's womb, I said the older will serve the younger. You had not done one thing when I chose you. It was unconditional, absolutely sovereign love from the Father. That was family history to them. They understood that. They knew that Jacob was a trickster and they knew Esau was flippant. Jacob wasn't loved based on his merits, nor was Esau despised based on his demerits. You see, God doesn't bestow his love on us based on our merits or demerits. He bases it on his sovereign love alone. I have loved you, says the Lord. So when God says, yet I have loved Jacob, but I have, aided, or I have hated Esau, don't get distracted. This is a passage about the love of the Father. The love of the Father. Hated right there, that's just relative. That's the law of priority at play. See, when you and I say hate, right, we don't mean what God means, okay? We mean you're dead to me, okay? But God doesn't, God's hatred is judicial, okay? It's not capricious. 
okay? It's, it's holy. It's not vindictive, okay? The overwhelming point right here in this passage is that God is extravagantly loving not to treat Jacob and Esau the way he is treated, uh, or Jacob and Israel the way he is treated Esau. I have loved Jacob. I have loved you. Okay, we're actually being shown the generous and extravagant love of God. He fixes his love on us. He shows us mercy. Is there any truth in all of Scripture more suited to shatter our arrogance in our pride than this? I mean, to put us in the dust and to exalt Christ on his throne. I have loved you that we deserved to be judged and condemned because every one of us is guilty, trickster, deceiver, shrugging our shoulders at the love of God. And yet we are not condemned but accepted and forgiven and adopted into the family of God. And God says, I have loved Jacob. I have loved you. You you see it? Do you see the parallel? You see it in the print? It's purposeful. I have loved you. I have loved Jacob. But he's not done. He's not done yet. You see, he wants to show them the extent, the extent of that extravagant love. You see, before Esau died in exile from God, refusing to repent, out in the mountains and the desolation and the wicked territory with the jackals of the wilderness. You see, he taught his descendants to hate God and to hate the descendants of Jacob. And then he taught his grandkids to hate God and to hate Jacob. And he passed it down from descendant to descendant. And they formed a nation called Edom, called Edom. You see it in verse 4, Edom. Like Israel came from Jacob, so Edom came from Esau. Edom was inbred with the hatred of God and the hatred of God's people. And for 1,600 years, for 1,600 years, they had attempted to organize and destroy Israel. But God had put his hand on them and said, Edom, You cannot have them. You cannot have them. Time and time again, they would try and fail. Why? Four words. Four weighty, significant, heavy, burdensome words of the Lord. I have loved you. So when the text says, verse 4, though Edom says we've been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins, you need to understand that's not theoretical. God is pointing back to Jacob and Esau, and right here, he's pointing back to a specific time. He takes care of them to prove the extent of his extravagant love. You go look it up, 2 Chronicles 20 if you wanted to, okay? Edom forms this military alliance with the Ammonites and the Moabites. You cannot imagine how big this army was. The Bible says that it fills up the southern desert of Israel, and they come against Judah. Judah, knowing, humanly speaking, that they are toast, cream cheese, go to the Lord and say, God, we're placing our lives in your hands. Only you can protect us. God looks at them and says, because you've placed your trust in me, I will take care of you. 
you will not have to lift a sword. But first, I want you to dress up and I want you to go to the front lines and face the enemy force. So the army gets their armor on. They go up to the front lines. They don't know that God has caused the generals of the Edomite alliance to get in a disagreement. Their disagreement in the general's tent spills out into the soldiers' quarters and they start to kill each other. Such that in 2 Chronicles 20, when the Israelite army arrives, the sun dawns, the light rises, and all the Israelite army can see is the dead bodies of the Edomites. They didn't even draw a sword. What's it say? What's it say in verse 4? Though Edom says we've been beaten down, not theoretical. Not theor- this is the extent to which God has loved them. They may build, but I'll tear down. They gather and invade, but I will destroy them, Second Chronicles 20. And so God is standing before Israel, and he's saying, I have loved you. I have loved you. I have conquered your enemy and will not let them have you. I've been present for you. And the Israelites in Malachi 1 shrug their shoulders. Eh. How have you loved us? How have you loved us? Because they didn't have the lives they wanted? because money was tight, because people were making all these false accusations about them. They slander them. They're living under an unjust government in Persia. They don't have the lives they want, the comfort they want. Their friends have more money. They have become the proverbial child whose dad gave them dad, and they've grown up to resent him because they don't have the lives they want. You see, they've returned from exile. The purpose of exile is for restoration. It's for restoration. They're expecting restoration from God. They think the restoration is about the promised land, the milk, the honey, the money, the power, the comfort. But God says, no, no, I'm restoring you to me and me to you. I'm restoring intimacy. I'm restoring oneness. I'm giving you me my most precious possession in the Israelites. Eh, How have you loved us? Harvest Church, the crossover is so clear. It's so obvious. We are a people of God living lives that are hard. We await our full restoration when Christ returns. But in the meantime, In the meantime, we live in a world that is infested with sin. It wounds us. We're surrounded by people who have better lives than us, the appearance of better things, literally living under a government that is unjust. We're just like the Israelites in the book of Malachi. And God is saying, be careful, be careful. Have you become the proverbial child? whose father could not have more clearly shown, I have loved you, but his love has become so valueless, so cheap, you're unmoved by it. You just keep on in your sin, in idolatry, unfazed by the love of God. So tempting, so tempting when we don't have the lives that others have to say, God, I've been waiting a long time. If you loved me, you'd do this. 
Where are you, God? And you start to look to the world to satisfy you. Can I just remind you, brothers and sisters, there is nothing in this world that can satisfy you. Nothing. And God is saying, be careful. Remember Esau. Remember Esau. Don't throw away the birthright for the temporary satisfaction of a fleshly craving. You're mad. You're mad at me that you don't have the money, the career, the peace, the influence, the security, the freedom you want. So tired of waiting on me to fulfill my promises and my word that you're about to take matters of life into your own hands. Remember Esau, be careful. I have loved Jacob. Maybe that's you. Someone in this room today don't have the money you want. Got passed up for that promotion. So tired of being alone. And God's saying, be careful. Don't do it. Do not do it. Because you don't want to miss how it ends. How does it end? Look at verse 5. The text says, your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Harvest Church, this is gospel love. Don't miss, the God of love is a God of mission. I mean, just think about it. Where are we today? Where are we? We are 2,500 years after the writing of Malachi, after the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. And where are we? Now, I'm not great at geography, but I'm pretty sure we're beyond the border of Israel. And God is saying, I've loved you. We are here to testify that this is true, that God has loved us in his name, will be magnified in all the nations. From a trash heap in Tegucigalpa, Honduras, to the streets of Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. From the 1,400 villagers in St. Margaret's Belize to the 121 million people of the Benjara group in India, from the halls of Carrierville High School to a backyard garage in Orange Mound. And God is saying, I have loved you. My name will be great beyond the border of Israel. I have loved you. And Malachi wants to waken us. He wants us to awaken us to the mission that God has set us on, that we have a task to do. We have a job to do to make disciples that the Lord be magnified beyond the borders of Israel. Hey y'all, as we conclude today, as we can, let me, let me just attempt to put this in a noteworthy statement for you. You see Malachi's way, Malachi's concern is that they would know God better, know God better, love God more, and worship God truly. I'll say it again. Malachi's concern is that they will know God better, verse one, the oracle he gives, the word of the Lord, that they would love God more, verses two through four, and that they would worship God truly, verse five. A brother in Christ texted me uh, this week and wanted to let me know he'd be praying for me while I prepared. Said he was excited about knowing how the Old Testament ends. He was joking. But you want to know how the Old Testament ends? The Old Testament ends with an oracle, an urgent, heavy, weighty, pressing, divine message. I have loved you. I've loved you with an everlasting love. And those words ought to shake us until we say the Lord be magnified. Look at, look at your verse, verse 5. 
you will see this and you will say the Lord be magnified. Maybe yours says, you will say great is the Lord. Harvest Church, don't you see how it works? Don't you see? God said, I have loved you, God says, verse 2. And you will say, the Lord be magnified, verse 5. I have loved you, God says, the Lord be magnified. I have loved you, the Lord be magnified. I have loved you, the Lord be magnified. Harvest Church, my prayer for you is that you would say, magnify the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you are great. Great are you, God. You are magnified, God, beyond the borders of Israel. Father, we love you. We love you because you first loved us. We worship you, God. I thank you for this text. Father, I pray you would help us. Come alongside us. We love you. Don't let us trade your love for the temporary satisfaction of a carnal craving. We love you. We love you. May you be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Amen. It's only fitting that as we come to the communion table, that we just take a moment, we just take a moment to sit in the Father's love. There's, a, there's two pivotal statements in the book of Malachi. Verse 1, 2, I have loved you. In verse 3, 6, I change not. I change not. Harvest Church, he hasn't changed. You see, 400 years of silence after the close of Malachi, but in year 401, the Son of God comes onto scene. He's saying, I have loved you. I have loved you. You were created by me. You were created for me. I have given you me, my most prized possession, my son. And he came, he went to the cross to pay for our sin, and he rose from the dead to prove he's present. He is available. He has conquered our Edom and Satan, and he cannot have you. He holds us in his hand says, no one can pluck you from my hand. He sits before you today and he says, I've loved you. If you've never heard that message before, it's the first time you've been saying your whole life to God, how have you loved me? And the whole time God's been saying, I've loved you. And maybe today is your day to join with us and say, the Lord be magnified, greatest Lord. Today is the day of your salvation.